through 21. And uh, it was my first cliffhanger sermon ever, uh, which was such a bummer because then I didn't follow through with it. But uh, we got to um, this incredible speech that Paul is about to give in uh, verse 22. And what happened was um, I left you guys with, you got to come back next week and we'll start into the speech. And then you came back next week event in our community that we addressed and talked about gospel freedom and Philippians and those kind of things. Uh, but we are going to make do on our promise. We're going to finish uh, this speech in Acts chapter 17. It is a remarkable speech. In fact, um, Abraham Lincoln quoted this, is quoted as saying that this was the greatest speech that was ever recorded. Um, and Abraham Lincoln was a pretty good speech writer. Um, so the fact that he says this is pretty remarkable. Commentators all over the globe say that this speech is pretty incredible. And we're going to look at it and talk about it in the context of local missions. Last week we talked about global missions. This week, we're talking about local missions, but before we do that, and let me just say this, um, if you were here last week, my preference isn't to handle a bunch of business and housekeeping at the top of the message. Uh, my goal is to just say amen, jump right into the message, but because we are highlighting local and global missions, and we don't do that often, we do want to let you know about some local opportunities that are in our community that you could get involved in, okay? So hear me. On most Sundays, we're just going to jump right into the text, but on special series like this that don't come often, uh, we do want to let you know about some local opportunities. So I've asked Chris Rivera to come up and share about what God is doing through FCA and our local schools and how you might be able to get involved. So uh, Chris, um, let me, hey, if Tyler or somebody's back there, let's grab Chris a microphone. Come on up here. Hey, you were trying to get out of here without using the microphone. Um, Hopefully somebody else is back there. Otherwise, we're going to be real close and you can talk to my cheek, uh, which that would be really awkward in this season. Uh, is anybody back there? Tyler, anybody? Can we get a handheld? Here he comes. Awesome. Oh, we've got one. Never mind. We're going to use this one. Thank you. Here you go. He tried. There you go. We got one. Sorry. Thanks, Tyler. Tyler Stevenson, everybody. How are we doing? Hey, everybody. Um, so we are a church that is planted... Uh, in this community uh, for a reason. We believe that. We believe that we have a mission uh, just demographically to the people around us. Uh, we don't think God made a mistake in, in putting us here. And so one of the opportunities that we've had over the last couple months has been over at West Carnival Middle School. Um, David Culberson, one of the coaches there, has been a longtime FCA guy. Um, he's been doing that for over a decade. Um, and so I got the chance to partner with him. Me and Renee set up some meetings um, and now we've got FCA going on Wednesday mornings um, in that, like, morning hour of 7 to 8, and it's great. Uh, but, hey, he expected, like, 10 people to be there. He was like, hey, we might have 10, 11, 12 kids. Uh, we started with 50, and we're up to about 80. Um, so these are kids that are there every single morning inviting their friends. Um, and it is, it's a student-led organization. If you've never gotten the chance to watch students lead a meeting, um, see kids volunteer to pray, see kids volunteer to read devotionals, see kids volunteer to lead their friends in the word of the Lord. Um, it's a powerful experience um, and it is open to you. We're gonna have more information over at Next Steps after this service, um, just with times and days. Um, I speak there about once a month, um, but it's also an opportunity to meet some other local youth pastors in the area. We're on a rotation and just showing these kids the big K kingdom, that there are brothers and sisters in Christ uh, that are not just uh, here at High Point, but all over the Carnival community. It's an awesome opportunity. Uh, don't miss out on it. Perfect. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Chris Rivera, everybody. 
Chris faithfully works with our students, and uh, I do want to just echo that. Um, if you want to get involved, um, maybe you and your small group want to adopt a team. Um, there's multiple teams. Carville has two middle schools, one high school. If y'all want to get involved and adopt a sports team and feed them before their game, whatever that might be, um, please talk to Chris. Please reach out to one of us. Um, please go to Next Steps. Um, if you're unfamiliar with High Point, um, right through the lobby in between the two doors that are facing, the two front doors facing Winchester is what we call Next Steps. Uh, we've got a lot going on at our church. If you're a woman, there's women's Bible study weekly. If you're a man, we've got a lunch that's here weekly. Uh, Jeff, one of our elders, he's got some cards that you can give out, some invest and invite cards. If you have questions about anything going on at our church, if you want to respond to the message, if you want to hear more about the gospel, go to Next Steps. Um, if you have any kind of next step here after one of our services, the place that you go is right through there at Next Steps. Um, also, if you want to get involved and serve, and I know I talked about this last week, we're not going to belabor it. I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit that if he moves you and convicts you to get involved, he will. Um, we don't want to guilt anyone to get involved. Um, but we start two services in two weeks. Um, not Sunday, but the following Sunday, we launch two services here. And we're excited for that. Uh, we're excited to offer an 11 o'clock service for the community. Um, but that means another service with more volunteers to jump in in the kids' ministry. Like I said, we've got folks that have been over there for over a year who haven't been in a service since we opened again. Um, and sure enough, they're throwing their hands up and volunteering to serve another service, and we're telling them no um, because we have plenty of capable people and we need um, the Holy Spirit to move and invite you guys to jump in and serve one another by serving our kids. So if you're interested in that, please go to Next Steps or you can fill out a response card. We'd love for you to do that because uh, we want to be able to offer that for both services. So uh, we need people to do that, but we'd love for you. Please don't hear me. I'm not trying to guilt you. Um, trust in God's grace in that and the Holy Spirit to motivate you to do that. Um, if you can't necessarily commit to that, that is totally fine. So um, that's all the housekeeping. Acts chapter 17, let's read it together. And what I'm going to do to give us a runway, we're going to read uh, what we covered a few weeks ago, 16 um, through 21, and then we'll just keep reading through 34 to cover our verses for today. So if you've got your Bible, um, go ahead and grab it or your device and stand for us as we read God's Word. Um, this is not to be weird or churchy. It is solely because we believe that faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. And we are reverent towards God's word. Um, it is if, as if he would be speaking it today. Um, the Holy Spirit wrote it. It is timeless. It is true. It is without error. It is the authority of God. So let's read it together. Um, this is Acts 17, starting in verse 16. It says this, Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And here's our text for this morning. It's Paul in front of this council. So Paul, verse 22, standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, 
This I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of, you, some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine is being like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among whom were also uh, Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. I'm going to pray real quick one more time as we jump in. God, your spirit is in us. Your word is in front of us. Um, God, that is a recipe for you to change our hearts, as always. Um, God, help us to meet with you here. Help us to see Christ in this text. God, help us to be transformed by your grace yet again. Um, it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, as we get into this text, I want to tell you a quick story. Um, I've had the privilege at High Point of going on several mission trips, and um, one of the things that we haven't always done, but we've added in the last few years, uh, because I, I usually take students with us on these mission trips uh, back when I was a student pastor, and we would go to these different places, but always, we kind of built this into our week, on the last day of the mission trip, um, we would not interact with any locals. Uh, we would dedicate the last day, um, Stephen's here, Stephen's been on one of these trips with us, we would dedicate the last day to not do anything mission-wise, but to begin to get acclimated to coming home. So we would plan some fun stuff, but we weren't doing any mission work, any evangelism, any interaction with um, the people that we were there to minister to and serve. We would kind of seclude ourselves. We would either go somewhere or we would stay kind of in our uh, dorm or wherever we're staying, and we would begin to have those conversations about getting acclimated to coming home. And that was always very, very interesting. And it was probably the most emotional day of the trip. Um, because you've got all these feelings and you've got these students knowing that tomorrow they like leave this place and they might not come back and they've made all these friendships during the week and lots of stuff would just surface. Um, some, some students would just kind of, you know, go inward and suppress and get emotional and wouldn't say much, but just you'd see tears. Others would just kind of, you know, vomit everything that's going on. Um, but there's always these different reactions. And if you could summarize kind of how the week went, there's always a few things, especially with students. Uh, one of those kind of observations throughout the week was that every single student walks away going, okay, why in the world do these people that we're serving um, don't have what we have here in America, don't have the phones, don't have um, social media, don't have all those things. We have all these possessions and commodities and everything else, but why do these people who have none of that have more joy than I do? That's one of the observations is it just doesn't compute that in a world with less things, that these children have more joy than we do here in America. And it wrestles, it like messes students up. They're like, I don't get it. 
And the issue is they're trying to get their joy from their stuff, and these people don't have those things, so that's one less barrier, and they find their joy in Christ. Um, having a lot of stuff cannot be helpful. Um, it can cause us to put our treasure in the things of this world. Jesus talked about this often, that we would not store up treasures here on earth, but we would store up treasures in heaven. Um, where your treasure is, Jesus isn't after our possessions. What's he after? Where your treasure is, there your what? There your heart will be also. He's always after the heart. The other observation, and this is the one that we're going to get into today, is that students almost always say it is so much easier to share the gospel here than it is at home, which is a sad reality, but it's true if you think about it. Some of you are like, yeah, I can see that. It's so much easier to raise some money to go to a place where you don't know the people, you might not see them again, you've left your commitments, you've left all the stresses of life in Carterville in 2021, like you've left all of those things, you've put your commitments and your responsibilities aside for a week, you go to a foreign place, and your one goal for the entire week is to love people and serve people and preach the gospel. And students almost always say, that is so much easier than the lunch table on Monday morning. And I think if you and I were honest, some of you, would, and this is a danger, we can almost hide behind foreign missions because it's, it's quote, easier than going over to your neighbor's house or having your neighbor over for dinner on a Tuesday night and starting a relationship for the sake of sharing the gospel with somebody. When we talk about that, people are like, you know, like, don't make me do that. Like, let me raise money and go to Haiti or somewhere else. You know what I mean? And that's why we're talking about this this morning. Uh, because yes, God's heart is for the nations. We traced the theme of the nations throughout the scriptures last week a little too much, if we're honest, because I took forever. But um, we trace this theme all throughout the scriptures. But until we realize that God has you and I, where we are, in the community that we're in, in the neighborhood that we're in, on the street that we're in, in the home that we're in. In fact, Paul's going to say that this morning in this text, that God has determined the allotted seasons and periods and times and places. That you are where you are, where you live, where you move, where you have your being, because God destined it to be so. He planned it and decreed it to be so, so that if you are in Christ, you could leverage those relationships, your sphere, your circle, for the sake of his name and his glory. Until we realize that, um, we won't do this. But the goal this morning is to look at Paul is to, and we're gonna see based on what he says, how he interacts with these people, Paul gives us some incredible wisdom and some great principles on how do we have these conversations with the people in our workplace, the people in our neighborhood, your uncle or aunt or crazy cousin that's coming over in a few weeks for Thanksgiving, all of those things, right? How do we have these conversations? Paul's going to give us some principles here because Paul, technically Paul is on a mission trip. He doesn't live in Athens. Um, but he's aware of the culture. He's familiar with the culture, and he's talking to people who he would have interacted with um, in his day. So we're going to look at this speech and take away some principles from that. Does that make sense? That's where we're going. So we're going to start in verse 22. Um, but to give you a little bit of a refresher, remember who Paul's audience is. Um, he goes into Athens. He's actually waiting on his friends to meet him there. Um, he was kicked out of Thessalonica, and his buddy stayed there. He's kind of waiting for them in Athens. He's perusing around the city. He's noticing their gods. He strikes up a conversation with these people. Um, he starts to reason with them. 
Um, and he's in the Agora, or some people pronounce it the Agora. Uh, us southern folk just say the Agora, right? He's in the, the marketplace in Athens. Now, Athens was the cultural capital of the world. Obviously, Rome was like the world power, um, had kind of taken over the known world, but Athens was the cultural capital of the world. And if you wanted to interact with people, you went to the marketplace. And we have to put ourselves in first century shoes. Um, there was no TV, there was no internet, there was no newspaper. So where did you go to hear the news? You went to the marketplace where someone was physically standing there like proclaiming the news to you. You didn't receive it at your driveway in the form of a paper. You couldn't go online and start talking politics and new ideas with people. What did you have to do? You had to meet them in the marketplace, and that's where the ideas were discussed. That's where the economics were handled. That's where political ideas and policies were put in place and argued and debated. The marketplace was more than just where you bought your groceries in the first century. It was like the place that you went to. So Paul is there. He starts talking with these Epicureans and the Stoics. And we talked about them a few weeks ago, but let me give you a quick kind of 30-second review. Epicureans were these people that believed that if there was a God, probably not, but if there was, he's so distant that he doesn't care about us, and the only thing that matters in this life is pleasure. YOLO, right? I know no one uses that phrase anymore. But if you want to know the philosophy of the Epicureans is do whatever you want, you only live once, live for pleasure, live for satisfaction, this is all we get. If there's a God, he clearly doesn't care about us because he's so far away that it doesn't matter, right? That's the Epicureans. The Stoics were the complete opposite. It was God is everything. God is in all the materials. God is in um, all of the universe, that everything is God, and that you are to be Stoic. Basically, that whatever happens to you in this life, you, just, you don't feel any emotions. You just take your lot and whatever the God who's everywhere has given you, if it's cancer, if it's sickness, if it's wealth, whatever it is, you take it, you don't show any emotion. That's why we use that term stoic to mean like um, unfazed, no emotion, all those kind of things. You just take your lot and you're supposed to live life with strength until you die. And you just take whatever the gods give you and you deal with it and you endure it and you then die. That's the stoics. One is God's non-existent or distant. One is God is everywhere. One is you live for pleasure. The other one is you just live to get by. You take whatever the gods have given you and you do what you can and you live with strength and dignity and don't show much emotion. Um, that's who Paul's audience is. And he's got both of them right in front of him and he starts giving them this, he starts telling them about God and they say, all right, hold on, you gotta come with us. And they take him to the Areopagus, like this council in Athens um, who would kind of put the stamp on foreign ideas. Hey, like this, we need to hear this new idea. If this is true or not, we're going to decide. Um, it was basically the Gentile equivalent of the Sanhedrin, like this group of elite people who would hear the ideas of the day and they would either, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down, stay away from these, those are dangerous, all of those kind of things. So Paul is in front of these people, literally. And why I love this text is because you don't see any miracles happen. You don't see you know, something fly down from heaven and amaze everyone, and then they believe. <clears throat> the beauty of this passage and the beauty of this speech is it's God's man with God's word, empowered by the Holy Spirit, with the people in the community. Now, take it by faith, um, but we can all resonate with this. 
And the goal of this morning is to think, okay, God's man, God's woman, with God's word, in the community, empowered by God's spirit, what can I learn and what can I take away from this speech? Because Paul gives us an incredible example of how you and I can interact with the people in this community. As we love them, as we serve them, as we get involved, as we know our neighbors, and that's just principle number one, is we need to be in our community. We need to be in the midst of it. If your goal throughout the week, if your unwritten goal is to get through the week without interacting with any other person outside your own family, um, then that needs to change. Jesus, I love the story of the, the miracle of turning water into wine because it starts with Jesus literally getting invited to a wedding. Jesus was in the community. He was involved. And I'm not saying you need to run for Carville Public Office or anything like that, um, but if you don't have relationships with unbelievers for the sake of the gospel, then we need to move in that direction. Because Paul's going to argue that is why we're here, to take the gospel to the nations, but also to take the gospel here. We ended last week looking at Romans where Paul says, some go, right? Paul leaves and says, I've got no more work to do here. Thousands of unbelievers, why can Paul leave and say, I've got no work to do here? Because he's raised up Timothy. He's raised up a church. He preached the gospel. He planted a church. He raised up leaders in the church. And he tells Timothy to do the work of the evangelist here in this community. And if you want to know what our role here in Carville, Tennessee, is God has raised up this church. He has raised up leaders in this church and in Memphis. And our goal is to do the work of, the, of an evangelist. And I'm not talking about the church like the building. I'm talking about you guys. I'm talking about me us, that our goal here is to be the light and to do the work of evangelists in this community. And we want to equip you with, okay, here's how you can go about this conversation as we go in. So let's look at verse 22. It says this, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago, but Paul um, your translation might say, I see, ESV says, I perceive. I think ESV captures it a little more because um, like Paul has already mentioned, um, the word I see there in the Greek is usually just to see something with your eyes is blepo. Paul uses the word um, therao, which is where we get the English word theory. It's like to see underneath. So Paul has been walking around Athens. He's been looking at all of these statues and these altars and these idols, and he looks at this council of elites and he says, I perceive, like I see underneath all that, I see that you guys are very religious people. And here's principle number one, if you wanna know what it is, is that everybody worships, everybody. Everybody worships. And you can use this to start a conversation with someone in this community for the sake of the gospel. Everybody worships. We've frequently defined worship as mind's attention, heart's affection, right? To ascribe worth to something. Everybody worships something. We all um, put our mind's attention and our heart's affection on something. We all ascribe worth to something. You may worship success. You may worship your job. You may worship golf. You may worship your own appearance. But we all ascribe worth to something and value to something. Everybody worships. And Paul's going to argue that it's because of this deep-rooted, deep-seated void in us. But we all worship. Everybody worships. And that's where Paul's going to use this as a hook to start this conversation with people. But everybody in this community worships. We have idols in this community that are community worships. 
people at your office, people in your family, they worship something. And if you think about the different relationships in your life, you may be able to pinpoint what those things are. But everybody worships. We either worship satisfaction, we worship significance, we worship security, but we all worship things. We sing the song, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, right? Um, We'd like to say that every day we worship God, but boy, are our hearts prone to wander and we worship other things. We worship our income, we worship our security, we worship our 401k, worship relationships, whatever it is. But Paul says, I perceive that in every way you are religious. And then he says, uh, for I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. So Paul passed by and he observed all of these different things. Paul was moving slowly through the city. He was examining the idols. Why? For the sake of having a conversation about the gospel. We don't look and study and get to know the idols of our culture um, to shame anybody, to guilt anybody. We do it to start conversations about what matters most, about the name above all names. And Paul starts looking and he says he observed um, its present active, so the, the the community, like the, the idea that he's communicating here is that he repeatedly observed, he repeatedly looked around, um, and he observed the objects of their worship. Now, many commentators say that Paul uses objects of your worship because he was being respectful here. He doesn't say false gods. He doesn't say idols. Why? Because Paul is being respectful as he's having a conversation with these folks about the gospel. And let me just say this. We need to live lives, as Paul will say in Philippians, that are worthy of the gospel. We talked about this um, after the shooting, that we need to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. That word worthy means, or in the Greek is axios. It means in balance with the gospel. So God has made us at peace with him, so we need to be at peace with the people around us. God has forgiven us, so what do we do? We forgive the people around us. God has loved and served and sacrificed for us, so what do we do? We love and serve and sacrifice for the community and the people around us for his sake and for his name. If those aren't in balance, then we're not living a life worthy of the gospel. Jesus told the parable where um, this man who was forgiven for $10, right, turns around and somebody, or he was forgiven for millions of dollars and pardoned, let off, no payment necessary, and then goes and strings the neck of the guy that owes him $10, right? Not worthy of the gospel, not in balance. We've been forgiven for so much, so we forgive the people around us. That's living a life worthy. We need to live lives that match this message that we are going to give people. And we can't do that perfectly, but we live in repentance. We produce fruit, as the New Testament says, in keeping with repentance. That even when we mess up, we model Christ by how we seek reconciliation with people and forgiveness from people. We live lives humbly, reverently, repentantly, but our lives need to match this message. And we need to have this message and we need to communicate it respectfully. 1 Peter 3, 15, this will be on the screens. He says this, Peter writes, but in your hearts honor Christ as the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with what? With gentleness and respect. Always be prepared to give a reason. And here's what's interesting about this verse. Peter says, to anyone who asks about the hope that is in you. To anyone who asks, 
And I had to face this question this week, but when's the last time somebody looked at my life and said, okay, like, tell me why you do what you do? Why are you so hopeful? Why do you have joy in the midst of what's going on here? Like, has anyone asked you that lately? And this stung a little bit, but John Piper says this. He says, why don't people ask us about our hope? The answer is probably that we look as if we hope in the same things that they do. That hurts. But there's probably some truth to it. That if the outside world would look at my life as a pastor here in this town, it really hurts to think that they would look at my life and see that I hope in the same things that they do. But boy, do I communicate that with my actions and my priorities often. But when people ask, and prayerfully as we are being conformed to the image of Christ, as we're remembering the gospel daily, as we're meditating on it and we're being motivated by it, um, people will look at you and ask. As we um, live out this gospel freedom, that if we're here on earth, it's for Christ, that if we die, we get Christ. We're here to preach the gospel, that God has determined where we are and where we live so that we would communicate the gospel to the people around us, that somebody would ask. Or maybe we don't wait for them to ask. We invite them over and we just start telling them, right? With gentleness and with respect. But Paul's going to be gentle. He's going to be respectful. But here's the, the danger. Sometimes we can be so gentle and respectful that we become silent. And Paul's going to be gentle and respectful, but he is not going to shy away from the truth at all. In fact, he's going to do a sharp turn in this speech and just hook them and drop the gospel on them pretty quick. But let's not be so gentle and so shy that we become silent. Um, we can often use this verse as a cover-up to not share anything, right? That we, don't, we are quiet in the name of, yeah, I'm just being gentle and respectful with my community. Paul doesn't do any of that. Look at um, the end of verse 23. I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. So Paul says, as I was waiting for my companions, I decided to investigate this marketplace and see what's going on here. And I saw all these idols and statues and altars, and I found one that I was curious about. And the inscription on one of your altars says, to the unknown God. And the word there, unknown, is agnosto. It's where we get the word agnostic. Um, agnostics um, take this word unknown. It's what agnosto in the Greek means. It means unknown. They take this and that's, they've turned it into their own belief system, right? Agnostics believe, um, they don't disbelieve in God, or, but they also don't believe in God. They just believe we can't know. We can't know anything beyond the material and the physical, and we just don't know anything. It's not that we believe. It's not that we disbelieve. We just believe that you can't know. That's agnosticism. Now, Paul, these people aren't doing that. They just took that word and kind of turned it into their belief system um, because there were gods all over. So they did believe in gods. But he found this one that said to the unknown God, and he says, um, he uses it as a hook. He's curious about it. He says, I found this altar, this thing, and I want to tell you about it. And he says this in verse, uh, the end of verse 23, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And then you see um, the next few ver or words, the God who made the world and everything in it. So Paul finds this inscription to the unknown God. And what that was, was like this catch-all thing. 
Greek mythology, Roman theology, there were all these gods, right? They were the god of the sea, the god of the sun, the god of fertility, the god of all these different things. And then they had this one god who was kind of like the catch-all god. Like, in case there's another god out there that we forgot about, here's his altar, right? And you see, just in the fact that that god exists, that there's a fear there of man, of life after death. And what if we got this all wrong? Let's get our safety net, God, and make an altar to him. And Paul says, this God whom you fear might exist, let me tell you about him. Because he does. And then he says this in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. So Paul says he's the God who made the universe and everything in it. He spoke the world into creation, right? Paul takes him right to Genesis 1 without saying Genesis 1. That God created the world and everything in it, and he's Lord of it all. He's Lord of heaven. He's Lord of earth. He rules it. He reigns over it. He created it. He governs it. He's the God of heaven and earth. And he doesn't live in temples made by man. That the God who, you think, that the God who made all of this would live right here in this little statue. Paul's like, no. This God that you fear might exist, he does exist, and he doesn't live and dwell here on this earth. He reigns over it. He is not like us. He reigns in us as believers. The Holy Spirit indwells in us. But God doesn't live in a statue. He doesn't live there. And I, know, I love how Paul doesn't say he did not live, right? He's talking present tense here. He currently does not live because he currently is residing and living somewhere else. Not a past tense thing, not he came and went, but he's here, he's alive, he's reigning, and he currently doesn't live here, he currently lives somewhere else. He's reigning over the heavens and the earth as Lord, like Paul just said. Nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything. Not only does God not live in temples that we created, he isn't served by us either. And what Paul is playing on is this idea um, that you always had to appease the Greek and Roman gods. That if you were going to go on a voyage on the sea, you had to appease the god of the sea. That if you wanted to have a baby, you had to appease the god of fertility. Like You always had to serve these gods so that they wouldn't harm you or hurt you or do ill towards you, right? And here's what we can know from the scriptures and here's what we can know as the people in our community are finding Worshiping, finding their gods, making these unknown gods with the things of this earth, is that if you have a God, if you're worshiping something that is not the one true God of the universe, you are going to have to keep serving it for it to serve you. If you're worshiping golf, you're going to have to keep serving golf so that golf will satisfy you. And the moment you quit serving it, it stops serving you. If you've turned one of your relationships into a God, you're going to have to keep serving that thing so it will serve you. And the moment you stop, it stops serving you. Do you see that? If your reputation, if your social media platform is your God, you're going to have to keep going back and keep posting. If your appearance is your God, you're going to have to keep dropping selfies out on the internet because as soon as you stop, it stops serving you and you feel insecure and inadequate and like you don't measure up and insignificant the moment you stop serving that God. You see what is going on here? 
Paul is saying that all of these gods that you've created, you have to continually keep serving them. That's how earthly gods work. We take good things that God's made, we turn them into bad gods, and then we have to keep going back to those things for them to satisfy us. And the moment we quit, it stops satisfying our soul. And you can bank on that as you interact with the people in this community. Whatever their God is, if it's their job, right, as soon as they retire, insignificant. Don't feel, I I didn't just lose my job, I lost my identity, I lost my self-worth, I lost my treasure. They quit serving it, it quit serving them. Taking a day off, right, doesn't happen if your job is your God. Because as soon as I stop serving it, as soon as I'm not in the office, I don't feel significant anymore. I don't feel like I've got what it takes anymore unless I'm working, right? That's a good sign that your job is your God. But if we, as soon as we stop serving these gods, they will quit serving us. And Paul says that this God, who's Lord of heaven and earth, he's not served by human hands as though he needed anything. And Paul, yes, we serve God as believers. We serve him, but not like this. God's not lacking where he needs his people to give him something that he's lacking, right? Paul is talking about this idea that these gods need humans to appease them. God doesn't need us at all. It's the doctrine of complacency. God is completely sufficient in who he is. He's not lacking something that humanity has to give him. It's a privilege for humanity to get to worship him and know him and experience him and be known by him. But God doesn't do that because he's deficient in anything. And Paul's saying these gods are. But this God, we don't serve him by human hands as though he needed anything. And look at verse 25. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. We don't serve our God's needs. In fact, he serves our every need. You see the contrast? We don't serve him as if he needed anything. In fact, our God is the opposite. He serves us in all of our needs. He gives us life. He gives us breath. He gives us every single thing that we could ever need. Every breath in our lungs. The fact that you and I can... We can inhale and exhale is because the God of grace and mercy gave you that next breath. He gives us life. He gives us breath. He's given us everything that we have ever seen, known, experienced. For from him and through him and to him are what? All things. To him be the glory forever and ever. That we don't serve him. In fact, he has served us with everything. That's the difference between these earthly gods and the one true God. You're going to have to keep turning back to that God to satisfy you. And we do nothing. And the God of the universe satisfies us. We believe it. We receive it. And his grace and his mercy and his peace and his comfort and his joy sweep in and they satisfy our souls. Not the other way around where we have to work for God's satisfaction. We work from it, not for it. You see the difference? We don't serve the gods. In fact, our God has served us. Um, Verse 26, and he made from one man, and here's what I want you to see. He made, this is like the the main verb here. He made from one man, and then Paul's going to give us two functions or two purposes why he made man. 
all right? And I want you to see these as we go through these next two verses. He made from one man. So God made us, he created us, and then he's gonna give us two, one man, two purpose statements for why God made humanity. He made from one man, every nation of mankind, here's the first one, to live, see the purpose there? It's an infinitive verb in the Greek. It's just, it indicates purpose. He made us to live on all the face of the earth. Why did God make us? To dwell here, to live here, to exist. He made us to dwell on all the face of the earth from one man, every nation. We talked about this last week, Genesis 11. That if you trace Genesis, you go from Adam and Eve to Noah, things get real bad. God in his judgment sends the flood and we start over again with one family, with Noah's family and from one man, we get down to Genesis 11, it's the Tower of Babel where God sends humanity all across the world and confuses their languages and we get the nations from one man. Paul is giving us scripture without even giving us chapter and verse. He's giving us the message of the Bible without getting into Genesis 11, verse 12 says this. He's not doing that, why? Because his audience wasn't Jewish. They wouldn't have known those references. He's just giving them the story of the Bible without even giving them, Moses wrote this, Isaiah wrote this, but you're gonna see him give the gospel just in his everyday language. Now, is Paul prescribing that every time we share the gospel, we don't need to do chapter and verse? No, because at the beginning of Acts 17, it says he reasoned with them in the scriptures. But there are some principles here that we can learn. Is it okay to do that? Yes, because Paul did it. The importance is to know your audience. Does your audience have background in the Bible? Then yeah, use the Bible. But if they don't, you don't have to chapter and verse them. What you can do is just give them the overall message of the Bible. You can give them the good news of the gospel. God created us, we sinned. God did something decisive about our sin. He sent his own son to pay the price for our sin and to live a perfect life that we could never live. And he died, he rose again, and by faith we can have his righteousness. Our sin is put on him. The gospel is double imputation. God imputes his righteousness to us, but it's because he imputed our sin to Christ. He takes on our sin, we get his righteousness, and we get to spend forever in heaven with God by faith in what he's done on our behalf. That's the gospel. Didn't give you Romans 1, didn't give you any kind of reference. But Paul starts doing that. He made from one man, every nation, here's the first reason, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place. So we not only see that God created the world, he's sovereign over the world, he reigns over the world, he's Lord of heaven and earth, um, but he controls every facet of heaven and earth. He's determined it, he's sovereign over it, over the allotted periods where you and I would live, all periods of human history, God is sovereign over it, he's decreed it, that you are where you are because God decreed that you would be here. At the family you're in, the job you're in, the city you're in, the street you're on, is because God has determined our period and our time and our place. You are where you are because God has determined for you to be there for the sake of his name and for his glory and for his renown. He's determined it. He's sovereign over it all. I love in the Gospels when um, Pilate is looking at Jesus and he basically says, why, why aren't you talking? Like, don't you know that I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? And Jesus says, no, you don't. 
says, you think you do. But the only authority you have is because my father has given you this time, this place, this job, this authority. And the scriptures say from that point on, Pilate tried to release him. You see Pilate like washing his hands, like I'm, I'm innocent of this man's blood. And Jesus says, no, God is sovereign over it all. And the fact that I'm here, and the fact that you're here, and the fact that you're in the job that you're in, and the fact that you think you have authority is because God has decreed it all. He has authority. He is sovereign over all things. So there's the first one, that they should live. And look at verse 27. Here's the second one. Why you were created, that they should seek God. That was the intent, that you and I would seek God. You were made to know God. We say this almost weekly, that the chief end of your life is to know God. That's why you were made, to know God and enjoy him forever. John 17 we're going to keep saying this until it's in your brain. This is eternal life. What? That you know God and Jesus Christ, the one whom he has sent. That's eternal life. That you and I get to know and enjoy and dwell and be with God forever and ever and ever. This is why you were made. That they would seek God. God created the nation so that they would seek him. God created you so that you would seek him. But here's the problem. Sin has marred our pursuit of God. In fact, Paul is going to argue, and I'll show you in just a second in Romans, that no one seeks God because we suppress the truth in our unrighteousness. In our sin, um, Isaiah 59, our sins have separated us from our God. It's hidden his face from us so that he will not hear. That because of our sin, we don't do this. We settle for lesser gods. And because we suppress it of joy and satisfaction and significance and security, we turn to these other things because we suppress the truth about God and we exchange the truth about God for a lie and we find ourselves, we feel around for joy and for worth and significance and we get our hands on the wrong thing because of our sin. Here's what, um, verse. let me finish verse. Uh, next few words of verse 27. Paul says, and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And this part sounds hopeful, but what Paul's communicating here is this perhaps is that you can't. You can't find him in your sin. That we feel around and we try, but if by some luck, the, the word picture here is someone feeling around in the dark. I don't know if you've ever experienced that at night in your house or whatnot. Power goes out and you have to feel around in the dark. That's what Paul's communicating here, that we're feeling around in the darkness of our sin looking for joy and security and significance and love and beauty and value and all of those things, and we've gotten our hands on the wrong thing. We've suppressed the truth about God, and we've tried to find significance in our job, in our reputation, in our own appearance, in relationships, all of those other things. Romans 3 says this, as it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless Really, feel good verse right here. No one does good, not even one. We suppress God's truth and unrighteousness and we try to find significance in other earthly things. And then here's the hope, verse, the end of verse 27. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. God is nearer than you think. He is omnipresent, 
He is everywhere. His presence is everywhere. And you guys don't realize it. Paul's saying this, but God is actually not farther than you think. You're trying to find God in all of these things, and you're missing him. But he's close by. And Paul's going to point out things in their own culture that show him, hey, you've almost got this. Like, you're close. You're looking for joy and worth and satisfaction. Uh, Pascal has this quote that says this, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing but only by God the creator. That we have this void in us and we're trying to fill it with all these things. The fact that you're trying to to fill it shows that you were made to seek God. The fact that you're trying to find joy and peace and satisfaction and all these things shows that you were wired, you were designed to commune and dwell and be with God. But you found the wrong thing. You suppressed God's truth of the gospel and you're trying to find worth and joy and peace in all of these earthly things. And Paul's going to quote one of their writers of the day in verse 28. He says, for in him, you see that it's probably in quotes in your Bible. For in him we live and move and have our being. This was a first century writer named Epimenides. Um, I'm not gonna tell you who he was or anything like that because it's not really relevant, but... um, Paul starts quoting their own literature to show them, hey, you're seeking, but you found the wrong thing. It's not your job. It's not your income. It's not your reputation. It's not security. It's not satisfaction. It's not significance. It's Christ. But he quotes, and he says, for in him we live and move and have our being. And then he gives them another argument, even as some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Paul starts quoting the the writers of the day, and both of these quotes were about Zeus. But Paul says, you're looking for all these things in these earthly man-made gods, and you have them in Christ if you would just seek him and see him and know him and trust him and believe in him. And we can do this with the people in our community, with our family members. Hey, the joy that you're looking for in that relationship can only be found in Christ. You're going to have to keep going back to golf or to your hobbies or to your, your possessions to satisfy you. And you can have ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction if you would forsake those and just find it in Jesus. The fact that you're looking shows that you're wired for this, but you found the wrong thing. And that thing will lead to death. It will hurt you. It will hurt the things that you put on that pedestal that were never meant to be there. And you can find what you're looking for in Christ. And Paul cites these quotes that were originally about Zeus and says, no, 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 it's not about Zeus, but the fact that you're, you're longing for those things and writing about those things and you've made gods to try to fulfill those things shows you that he's who you were wired to be with. He's who you were designed to dwell with and to be with and to know and to see. But you found the wrong thing. You see that? It's a beautiful speech. Verse 29 Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art of imagination and man. And then Paul argues that, hey, if the God of the universe, if we're his offspring, look at how incredible we are. Like his image is on us. We can move and we can think and we live and we have our being. Why in the world, if we are the offspring of God, how could you say God is this statue who doesn't move, doesn't breathe, is dead? He's appealing to rational thought here. He's, he's letting their logic go to its own end. And we can do this with the people around us. If their God is earthly, if it's man-made, that it will eventually have its own end if we take it to its end. 
And Paul is saying, hey, if look at us. If we're the offspring of God, how can this be God? Because you made it with your hand. How did we come from that? If you made that, and we move and we speak and we have rational thought, like there's something greater than that that has put his image on us and created us, and it's certainly not that. And the fact that you're writing about these things shows that you're longing for it. But you've got your hands on the wrong thing. And then he says this, and let me explain this confusing verse real quick in verse 30. He says, uh, but let me read verse 29 for a second. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that divine beings like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked. So Paul's hooking them right here. He's getting to the gospel. The times of ignorance are over. What's Paul talking about here? Talking about the Old Testament. And he calls it the times of ignorance. Now, what in the world does that mean? It doesn't mean that God just gave everybody in the Old Testament a pass because they were ignorant and Jesus hadn't come yet and everyone just went to heaven. It doesn't mean that. What does Paul mean here? He actually addresses this in Romans. And I want you to see this, this concept of the times of ignorance here. Um, this is actually a few verses later in Romans 3. He says this, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we know that verse, and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to receive, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. In his divine forbearance, God had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What Paul is saying here is that in the Old Testament, why in the world did people who sinned in the Old Testament, why weren't they just judged immediately? Because if they were believers in Christ, if they were believers, they may not have even known Jesus' name. But if they believed in the God of the Bible, who would one day send a Messiah, that if they believed in him, Paul says that according to God's divine forbearance, that even their sins in the past were placed on Christ. God was able to not judge them and kill them immediately because they had belief. Abraham believed, and it was accounted to him as righteousness, right? Old Testament believers, they believed in God. They believed in a promised Messiah. And because of that, according to God's divine forbearance, he was able to pass over their sins and put them on Christ. Their sins were paid for, but it was paid later on Jesus. You see that? And Paul is saying that, hey, those days are over. And the next thing to happen, according to redemptive history, is judgment, right? Creation happened, sin happened, prophets happened, Messiah came, he sufficiently fulfilled the law for us, he died, gave his life up for us, he rose, he ascended to the right hand of God, the spirit descended and now indwells believers. And the next thing to happen is the return of Christ and the judgment of the believers and the unbelievers. All of us are gonna face God himself one day. And Paul says, hey, those Old Testament days are over. He's communicating this urgency here. You have to take refuge in the God of the Bible. You've got to, because those days are over and the next thing to happen is his return. All of the, old, all of the New Testament writers wrote with this idea that they believed that Christ was coming back in their own lifetime. And I think we should take our cue from that and we should live like he is in our lifetime. Because he might. 
But Paul says, hey, he's communicating the urgency. Hey, those days of ignorance are over. It's time to repent. But now, verse 30, he commands all people everywhere to repent. You want to know what God's command is? Is that you and I, we would repent from our sin and we would find our refuge in him. Verse 31, because he has fixed a day. Why should we repent? He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This Jesus is coming. How do we know he's coming? Because he rose from the dead. He's still alive. He's not dead. He ascended to the Father and he will descend the same way that he ascended. How do we know that this judgment day is coming? Because they tried to kill him and it didn't work. And he's alive and he rose and people saw it. 500 or more people met with him after he rose. He ascended, everyone watched it. And because he's alive, he's not dead, we know he's coming back. How do we know the judgment's coming? Because he rose from the dead. How do we know there's grace? Because God rose from the dead. How do we know that if you believe in him, you'll actually have eternal life? Because he is still living. He's eternal. If you put your faith in him and you're united to him, this eternal life is granted to you. I gotta wrap up. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. Some mocked. And here's what I want you to see. Paul is totally okay with both of these. That when you preach the gospel to people, two responses. They'll mock you, or they'll hear you and believe. Christ Jesus, and I don't have time to go to the reference. If you wanna take a note, write this down. First Peter chapter two, verses four through eight. Peter basically, we talked about this with our young adults recently. Peter basically says, it's always been this way. Jesus will either be your cornerstone or he will be the stone of stumbling. Only two options. As we preach the gospel, and it's a, it's a quote from Isaiah, that it was true in the Old Testament, the Messiah would be their cornerstone or he would be the stone that they stumbled over. Paul's day, he's either your cornerstone or he's the stone that causes you to stumble. Same is true in our day, that as we preach the gospel, people will either turn and hear and Christ will be their cornerstone of their lives or he will be the stone that they stumble over and they'll mock him. And Paul's content with both because our job's not to save anybody. We can't save anybody. Our job is to be faithful to the message to leverage our lives and leverage our relationships for the sake of the gospel. So Paul preaches the message. He allows those that are going to stumble to stumble over this idea of a resurrection and those that hear believe. When they heard this, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again. And then look, Paul leaves. Paul went out from their midst. He goes. And let me just say this. This is why I think we don't need to create these emotional moments where we ask people to raise their hand and put their trust in Jesus. Because I don't wanna live with the thought that I might have given someone false assurance that they just went through the motions and recited a prayer and now they spend the rest of their lives, no heart change, no transformation, and they think that they have a relationship with Jesus because I told them they did. We are faithful to the message, we preach the message, and then what happens? We are available and accessible to anyone who might want to respond to it. I'm not saying we're ignorant. I'm not saying we're hiding from people. We're gonna preach the gospel this morning and then I'm gonna pray and I will stay here all day long and our elders will too if you want to come to know Jesus. But we're not gonna manipulate people and put on the fancy music and all those kind of things and ask you to raise your hand and put pressure on you and make you walk out of here thinking that somehow your heart's changed because you recited something that you may not understand. You see that? 
We're not against it. We don't hate it or anything like that. We just think if we preach the gospel and we leave and we are accessible and available, the people that make Christ their cornerstone, they will come. The people that stumble will stumble. Does that make sense? Cool. And then verse 34. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. The ones that heard and believed and made Christ their cornerstone, they followed and said, tell me more. Like, I want to know what this is. I believe in this God who you're talking about. Tell me who he is. And they believed. And that's the speech. And that's our call, is that you and I, as we go through our lives today, some of you need to respond by going to your community, to your sphere, to the relationships you know what their idols are. You know what their gods are. And saying, hey, what you're looking for in that thing, you can have in Christ. And you don't have to keep serving it. He will serve you. He will satisfy your soul. Experience the freedom from those things and find your joy and your worth and your peace in Christ. Others of you, you need to respond to this message. Because you walked in here and your God is, I don't know, I'll let the Holy Spirit show you what that is. But some of you, you might have walked in here and you have a God that you've made with your own hands. You've been living and worshiping to this unknown God. Let me just tell you who he is. He is Christ the Lord. He has done for you what you could never do for yourself. He's lived the life that you could never live and he's taken on your sin and my sin and he willingly went to the cross with it and paid for it so that by faith you can have his righteousness. We need to take that message we need to believe that message. I don't know where you fall this morning, but we're available and we're accessible. And if you walked in here, do not leave here. If you do not have assurance that you've put your faith in this person, Christ Jesus, and made him the Lord of your life, we'll stay here all day if you want to talk about it. For the rest of us, let's go into this community locally and proclaim this message to the people around us. Does that make sense? Let's pray. Lord, we love you. God, we're grateful for your word. God, we thank you for the example of Paul. God, that he's given us handles. He's given us a precedent. He's given us an example of how we can live around um, and amongst the people in our community. God, you have put us here. You have determined our time, our place, our allotted season. So God, help us not to waste it. God, help us to take this gospel message, the same grace that you've given us, you want to give to others who are seeking for you and that God, they're looking for joy and hope and satisfaction in all the wrong places. And God, we know where it's truly found. So help us to go. God, the means by which those people might come to know you is where you've put us, the job you've put us in, the family you've put us in, the street you've put us on. God, forgive us for not using our time and our energy and the houses and the jobs and the cars that you've blessed us with to leverage those for the sake of the gospel. God, help us to do that. You ran after us. So God, help us to run after you by running after the lost in this community. In Christ's name we pray. Let's stand and sing.